A listener's note. Some episodes of this podcast include discussion of death and other traumatic experiences. Please use discretion when listening and take good care of yourself. When a partner or spouse dies, you may feel for some time like all your dreams have died too. You spend time looking back because the present seems unbearable and the future unimaginable. And yet, sometimes we discover that fate has connections for us that are beyond what we could have dreamed. Dawn Carroll was a first responder who met the man of her dreams, John Young, on the job in New Jersey. I was a medic and a flight nurse on a medevac helicopter and also worked for New Jersey Task Force One as their medical personnel. We got deployed for building collapses, hurricanes, um, natural disasters. Um, I was also on their white water or their swift water recovery team during floods and uh, going out to assist people. I met John in 2003 when I joined the team. We just, uh, he was on the same team as me, but at six foot seven, he was pretty formidable. And um, I would say hi to him. And that was about it for a while. Um, He was a little intimidating. Um, Came to learn that, you know, he was a six foot seven teddy bear with a very, very, very big heart. And that's how we met. Mike Carroll met his future wife, Cindy, in Maine. Every year we'd have this family reunion where all of the aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters would all get together. We'd end up renting a hall to have this family reunion. So one year I'm at the family reunion, my twin brother comes in and he's got this girl with him that he supposedly said he started dating. I said, oh, cool, good for you. He's kind of nice looking. So during the family reunion, we got talking and all that stuff and, and they left and, and the family reunion broke up and, and we went on our way and I was talking to my twin later on and he was telling me that she worked in the same company that he worked in and all that stuff. And so I ended up getting to meet her afterwards and, and when they were going out and she decided to break up with him and I decided that I'd go pay her a visit. Dawn and John chatted during a couple of New Jersey Task Force One deployments, but they really didn't have an opportunity to get to know each other until she had car problems on the Garden State Parkway. I pulled into one of the rest areas and, uh, of course, tried calling my son and tried calling my daughter. She didn't answer, so I'm like, okay, who am I going to call? So, and I thought of John. He had given me his number. I thought, well, at least he could tell me how to fix the car and get where I need to go. So I called him, and he was at the fire station. He was at work, and he got someone on the phone that knew about cars, and we chatted for a while, and they couldn't fix it for me over the phone. So they said, bring it up there to where John lives, which was about 25 minutes away from where I was on the Garden State Parkway. So I called the tow truck, and and I'm just sitting in the pouring rain in my car waiting for the tow truck to come. Next thing I know, I see John showing up with his, uh, our, his uh, government vehicle with all the lights going. And, and uh, I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, I wasn't going to let you come down here and be by yourself. We got the truck towed up to a car dealer near where he worked. I 
told him I was going to call my son to come pick or try and call my son to come pick me up. And he said, no, I'm taking you home. And I said, I live on the other side of the state, which to go across New Jersey in that part of the state is about 45 minutes. And so it wasn't a long distance, but, you know, it was enough. And he's like, no, I'm taking you home. So he took me home. And on the way home, we started talking about things that we'd done during our lives. And I had been in the trauma center in Oklahoma City when the Murrah building was bombed. I told him about my experiences with that, which I said in no way in no way compares to the experiences that you had at the World Trade Center. Um, it was on a much smaller scale, but I did lose quite a few friends in that bombing. New Jersey Task Force One was the first team to enter the World Trade Center on 9-11. John and Dawn connected while sharing their experiences as first responders on two of the country's darkest days. It wasn't for probably another year and a half after that that uh, we one day, he, he brought someone up. I was, as I said, I was a flight nurse on a medevac helicopter, and he brought uh, one of the council people up to take a ride on the helicopter. And that gentleman is the one that told him on the way home that, I think you're in love with her. And he's like, no way. <laughs> and then he called me up, and and we started dating after that. Meanwhile, in Maine, Mike kept up with his brother's ex-girlfriend, but never asked her out. Then she moved in with a mutual acquaintance of ours that she did work for in the same town that we were living in. And my friends looked at me and said, if you don't go and talk to her, then I'm going to. And I said, all right. So I left and knocked on the door, and she was excited to see me, and we started dating after that. And She had a two-year-old son that one day after I had got us both into trouble because I gave him a ride on my motorcycle when she was at work, and she came home early and caught us pulling into the driveway on the motorcycle. So that evening, her son looked at her and said, Mom, can Mike be my dad? And that kind of sealed it for me that I wasn't getting out of this one. So a month or so later, I asked her to marry me, and we got married. Mike and Cindy were married for 28 years. During that time, he flourished in his emergency medical services career, working his way up to become a certified health and fitness instructor and fire safety trainer. He was at the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, when he received a call about a medical emergency at home. It was a Monday morning, first day of class, and I was, we were sitting there introducing ourselves, and I was sitting beside a, a deputy fire chief from Camden, New Jersey, um, and we were needling each other about New Jersey, and he was needling me about Maine and all that. And at the academy, you have to stand up and introduce yourself and why you're there and all that on the first day of class. So we did that, and then my phone rang. And I looked, and it was the fire department that I worked for. So I'm sitting there going, geez, I've only been gone for the weekend, you know. They know where I am. So I walked out of the class and called, and I got the fire chief secretary, and she said, you need to call your wife's work. There's some type of medical emergency. I said, okay. So I did, and, and I said, what's going on? Let me talk to somebody from the ambulance. Well, the part-time paramedic was, that was on that day worked 
for me at the fire department. So he identified who he was, and I said, "What, Howard, what's going on? And he said, we got her on the monitor, we got IVs going, we got her intubated. I said, whoa, whoa, time out. What? What? He says, oh, nobody's told you. I said, no. Um, and I said, what's the cardiac monitor say? And it was this long pause. He says, Mike, it says asystole, which is flatline. He says, let me talk to you when we get to the hospital. So that was it. She died then. But I have to say that the National Fire Academy, as the fire service does, by the time I left um, the classroom, got to my room and got uh, my bags packed, they had an airplane ticket for me and a ride to the airport to get me home. In New Jersey, after two and a half years of dating, Dawn and John were engaged to be married. They were looking forward to a weekend of wedding planning on November 16th, 2011. I was on the helicopter that day. I was finishing up a twenty a reverse 24. I'd started the night before, so I would be working till 7 o'clock that night. John was also on a 24-hour shift at the fire department. He'd had two nights. Two fires the night before, he had gone over to the OEM building, and he called me while he was there, and he sounded so much like a little boy in a candy store because we actually had four days off together. We had bought a house. He was bringing things from his house up to our house um, in preparation to sell his house. He had things planned with my son and daughter, and my grandson, and unbeknownst to him, we had a surprise birthday party planned for him that weekend. Pretty much everybody in the fire department was coming to the party, and he had no clue that it was happening. And he was talking about everything he wanted to do that weekend and all the good times we were going to have, and he was just so, so excited. As he got off, he said, I am so very in love with you. He hung up, and 17 minutes later, I got another phone call from his phone. And I answered it, and I said, you just talked to me, and it wasn't him. It was one of his firefighters. He apparently had left the OEM building driving back to the firehouse because there was a call for another fire. had a heart attack and crashed the truck. He was less than half a mile from the fire department and they had come and worked on him. They got him back, um, got him to the hospital and as they were taking him up to the cath lab, um, he coded again and they were unable to resuscitate him. And I went to the hospital after that and couldn't believe that he was gone. He was always the first one on the scene. He was the most highly decorated firefighter in the state of New Jersey ever. He was just that go-to firefighter in the state. If you needed anything, had a question about anything, needed training on anything, John was the one you went to. And when I got to the hospital, to see him lying there lifeless. 
being a nurse, I, of course, I wanted to know what had happened, when it had happened, but I was still bargaining for him to come back. Didn't want to believe he was gone. And then had to sign the papers to donate his organs. And then I had to think about my daughter, who was just absolutely devastated, as was my son. Also, you know, practical things like, what was I going to do now? Because we had bought the house together. What was my life going to look like now? It was uh, like this big abyss opened up and swallowed me in it. Following Cindy's death, Mike focused on helping his two grown sons grieve the loss of their mother. But caring for his kids and taking over life's practicalities, like paying the bills, were only temporary distractions from a regret that had been gnawing at him since Cindy's fatal aortic aneurysm. In hindsight, she had just started exercising, and she was complaining of having some pain in her upper shoulders and across the chest. And I said, well, what are you doing for exercises? And at the time, I was a personal trainer for firefighters. And she told me what she was doing. And I said, well, you got to back off a little bit on the weights and, and get used to it before you go pushing right through. And wrote it off as, as muscular pain. So then that happened, and I kind of beat myself with some pretty serious guilt there. I questioned myself as a paramedic and um, if I can't save my wife, what right do I have being out in public trying to save anybody? And I had a real good friend that was an emergency room doctor and we had a talk one day and he says, so what's up? And I, I told him, I said, I, I don't, I think I'm going to turn in my paramedic license. He says, what are you talking about? I said, I, you know, I, I, I didn't even recognize this with my wife. She told me she was having this pain across her chest and he says, so what would have happened if you had a brought her into the hospital? I said, well, you would have picked up what it was. Says, no, we wouldn't. We would have done EKGs, wouldn't have shown anything, and we would have sent her home. And the same thing would have happened. And that helped a little bit. In reality, I'll probably carry that guilt to my grave. Um, I used that um, in educating other paramedics and firefighters and first responders on self-help and, and understanding we're human. Grief specialist Jenny Woodall has this to say. I think it's normal to question the circumstances around a loved one's death, to leave no stone unturned in trying to make sense of an unimaginable loss. And part of that is looking for what caused it, whether that's another person, an organization, a natural or man-made event. And sometimes that includes ourselves. It's part of the grief process for many people. I think there are a lot of ways to work through it. You can talk with other people. I think it's a place where mindfulness, writing, prayer, meditation can all come into play. But if regret or guilt becomes a real sticking point in grief, that's an example where working with a therapist might be helpful. 
therapy can really help tease out the beliefs that we have and the thought patterns that are keeping us in the belief that this was somehow our fault or that we had control over the situation. We're very hard on ourselves. And ultimately, however we get there, we have to let ourselves off the hook and practice real self-compassion in order to continue to live. I think it's good advice to treat yourself as you would treat a dear friend. Grief is the feelings of ultimate irretrievable loss. And there's all different kinds of grief um, with how the person fits into your life. I had lost my mom. I had lost my sister. I had lost several friends. But John and I had that once-in-a-lifetime true love that, you know, I had always dreamed of, had never experienced, didn't think I was ever going to have it, as had he, and we found it with each other. And when he died, I didn't know how to deal with that loss. I didn't know how to deal with everyday life. I can remember days and weeks and months of saying, what now? What's next? We had planned, we had all these plans, all these dreams, all these hopes, and it was as if the the chalkboard was wiped clean. I do believe in God, and I had been told ever since I was growing up that God doesn't close one door without at least opening another window. Um, but in the depths of that grief, I doubted God, doubted what he stood for and how could he take such a wonderful man away from so many people. Had I not gone to Memorial Weekend and experienced the love, the support, the guidance, and the hope that the returning families, as well as all the firefighters that were there, I don't know that I would be here today. Um, my grief was, was that deep. That weekend gave me hope. I saw people that had been in my same shoes the year prior or years prior and saw that they made it, and they encouraged me and gave me hope. And they, they all kept in contact afterwards, checking on me, encouraging me. I had a firefighter. He lived out in Kansas. He knew I didn't get off until 11 o'clock at night, so at 12.30 every night he'd call me up, and he'd go through my day with me and see how I was doing, and I'd laugh and I'd cry. and. And, you know, I'd ask him questions. Okay, how do I do this now? How do I do this? And uh, after Hurricane Sandy, we had no power, no heat at the house for two weeks, and I was running low on wood. He's like, well, I can bring some from Kansas. And I said, well, that's hardly hardly practical. <laughs> but thank you for the offer. Um, but just to know that there were there was someone there that if I needed to talk to someone at 12.30 in the morning, I could. 
Director of Family Programs Bev Donlan provides this high-level overview of how the foundation takes care of the families who have someone being honored at the National Tribute to America's Fallen Firefighters well before Memorial Weekend. Well, we try to connect the families based on similarities, of course, you know, such as the type of loss or the dynamics of the family. If there's a a widow with small children, we'll connect her with another widow who was raising small children at the time of her firefighter's passing. You know, we'll connect fathers with fathers who have lost a son or maybe even they lost a daughter. So having families reach out to new families whose firefighters being honored opens the door to a safe environment where families can talk about their firefighters with those who understand their pain. And this often forges a valuable relationship prior to the Memorial Weekend. Again, it's about getting that connection, maybe putting them at ease for when they make that trip for their firefighter being honored. They can have that support. They know somebody's going to be there on the other end that gets it. We encourage all the families to attend the Memorial Weekend and to ensure that every firefighter being honored has family representation. We can um, assist with travel expenses, provide meals, and we provide a hotel room just to get those families there because it's important. As a member of the fire service who had attended trainings near the National Fallen Firefighters Memorial, Mike began volunteering as an escort at Memorial Weekend. He'd signed up to be part of the Foundation's winter retreat one year, but considered canceling his plans on the day of the event. I woke up and said, I I wanted, because it's like an eight-hour drive. It's raining out, and so after beat myself up back and forth on should I, shouldn't I, and, and loyalty kicked in and said, you told somebody you're going to be there, you're going to go. Dawn was having a similar debate with herself in New Jersey. I had been going to the Christmas tree decorating for the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation since the year after John had been honored and met a friend who um, her husband had died the same year as John and we would meet there and decorate the trees and we both looked at that as a very special and sacred event in a way to honor our firefighters but also other families firefighters. That year I was in the process of getting my house ready, our house ready to put on the market as financially I just could no longer Um, continue working two full-time jobs. I wanted to be able to enjoy life a little bit. Um, And working two full-time jobs, you you don't enjoy life at all. I wasn't being able to spend a lot of quality time with my family, and um, just being at the tree decorating is very emotional. I thought, "I I just can't handle it this year. And had sat down on the floor and was crying and yelling at God and John and and uh, at the end of my um, screaming and crying, I looked up to the ceiling and I told John and God, I said, listen, if you want me to follow a path, you need to push me along that path because I don't take hints real easy. So don't send me a butterfly. Don't send me a rainbow. Push me. Something told me to go. It was pouring down rain. I got there late. The person that... Uh, coordinates the tree decorating, Claudia, she was there and she's like, oh, come here, I'm going to introduce you to someone and you can help him decorate this tree. She came over and said, Mike, I said, 
Claudia, I'm decorating the tree. I'm doing the best I can. And she says, no, I want you to meet somebody. And I turned around and saw Dawn, and a spot kind of went off when I, when I saw her and said, okay. She took me over and introduced me to Mike, and that was the beginning. We talked, and as we decorated, and, um, gave each other a big hug before we left, and we communicated either Facebook and text messages and, and all that. And she told me she was selling a house, and I said, well, what are you going to do when you sell your house? And she said, well, I want to get a two-bedroom house on a lake. I said, wow. I said, that's funny. I just bought a three-bedroom house on a lake. Then I went to a, um, took a trip, had to teach a class out. I can't remember where I went, but I was flying back and had a stop in um, LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Called her and said, hey, I got a three-hour layover in LaGuardia. You know, you're in the area if you want to stop and we can have coffee or something. So she did. <laughs> Before we actually had our fir first coffee date at LaGuardia, I said, um, before we get more involved here, I'm going to give you a list of everything, all of my quirks, everything I think that is wrong with me that probably could use some improvement. And if you go running, that's okay, and we can just be friends. That's fine. But I want you to know up front, these are the things that I, I feel about myself. These are the things that I will not bend at, and these are the things that I expect from someone that sh should someone come into my life again and uh, he laughed after I got done listing them all off and he he gave me his list and, and he said well if you don't run he said I'll take you <laughs> and uh, um, and then we had our, our first date and I went up to Maine and, and uh, it was the middle of winter so I knew what winters were like up there and um it was uh, a beautiful weekend. He has a dog. I had dogs. and uh, Well, that, that was one of the tests. Yeah, that if, was one of the tests. <laughs> if the dog liked you, you were all right. <laughs> a year after Dawn and Mike started dating, they attended Memorial Weekend together. Until then, they had been keeping a secret from their friend Claudia and her husband Jeff. I said, we're together. But her eyes just got big and she started crying. And... Uh, then we went out later and, and told Jeff the same thing. And um, then when we got engaged, we asked them to come up for our wedding because we felt they were such a pivotal part, you know, in introducing us. And they were also good friends of ours. And they came up for our wedding. Claudia had made up this ornament for us um, that had the... Uh, latitude and longitude of the exact spot where the Christmas tree was in the chapel where we had met. And then on the other side was a picture of the chapel, and uh, underneath she had written uh, Forever Love and uh, gave that to us as our wedding gift. And that's the first ornament that goes on the tree every year. Dawn and Mike say that experiencing the loss of a significant other connected them. And being able to talk about John and Cindy has been an essential foundation for their new partnership. She was my wife for 28 years, and, you know, um, just she died, but she's still in my heart, you know. Um, 
And Dawn having a similar thing happen with her, I think it it was more a bonding um, and and help helped us with each other's struggles moving forward and, and being in a relationship. I could talk to her about how I was feeling and what I was going through at the time, at the, that moment, um, and she understood. And we both learned that you can love many, many people, and we have a great love for each other that will transcend for all time. And when we did get married, we did not put in our vows until death do us part because we know our love will go beyond that, as it does for John, as it does for Cindy. I think because of what I've been through and Mike's been through, that it gives us a a good perspective on how to help others that are going through it, which is why I've been back every year to the memorial. I volunteer in the peer-to-peer support. If I can make a difference in one person's life, that they feel that they have a little bit of hope to take that next step forward, that's my way of honoring John. Do you have to make a conscious choice, I think, at some point? Are you going to just continue existing and living in that grief, or are you going to go on living and commemorating that, that joy and that love that you had for that person? Memorial Weekend provided Mike and Don two unique opportunities to honor a firefighter who helped him on the day of Cindy's death. There's a few families that I'm still really close with. One of the families I'm close with was that New Jersey deputy chief that I was sitting beside in class when my wife died. When I got home, two weeks later, I get a box in the mail that had all the books, um, my certificate from class, which I didn't attend, and class picture and shirts and all that stuff. He had taken upon himself to get the class together and gather all that stuff up and, and send it to me. And we stayed in touch for quite a while. And, um, I hadn't heard from him in a while. And I was going down to be an escort one year, and I was just going through the list of firefighters that died, just seeing if I knew any of them, and, and I saw his name. So I called the foundation up and said, hey, you know, I don't know if anybody's um, from Paul Price's department is coming to be an escort. And I told the, the story, and, and they said, absolutely, you're, you're their escort. We have fire service volunteers and returning family members waiting to welcome those families upon their arrival and throughout the weekend. They are well taken care of. During the Memorial Weekend, each family is assigned a fire service um, family escort, and that escort will provide support for the family and make sure that those families' needs are met. You know, if they need a wheelchair, we'll get them a wheelchair. If they need a car seat, we get a car seat. Whatever they need, we will take care of it. Dawn has a a tradition that every year if she sees one of the families of one of the fallen firefighters at a restaurant, she'll buy their meal anonymously. So we were sitting there one day, and and she did this. She asked the waitress for the check. and, And I looked at her and said, well, which what family are you buying for? She pointed at the table, and I'm looking at the table, and I'm counting, and I'm looking at him. She says, what? And I said, that's my family. And it was the family of that deputy chief from New Jersey that I was friends with. They came up to me during the weekend. His, his son looks at me and says, 
You were in the restaurant. I said, yep. You bought a lunch. I said, no, I didn't. My wife did, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Mike retired from the fire service after 47 years. He and Don are enjoying their house on the lake in Maine, complete with visits from the kids and grandkids. The life they've built together, beyond the loss of their first loves, compels them to teach others what they've learned about grief. When they, when they teach you about grief, it's in this nice categorized order. And that nowhere is near correct. I mean, it just bounces all over the place. And that everybody has their own way of looking at grief and, and dealing with grief. Like Mike uh, had learned in nursing school, you know, there's these steps and they come in order. And there's this premise that once you hit the last step, it's done. And it's not. And after losing several people in my life, I've realized that it's more like a merry-go-round. And you just hop from one animal to the next, hoping you don't fall off of one of those animals. And sometimes you just sit in the little bench thing that's in there and and ride the merry-go-round that way. But people have this supposition that grief stops, and it never stops. It changes, and you adapt to it. It's okay to show emotion. We're human. We're not expected to deal with stuff at this magnitude without showing t- some type of emotion, and, and we have to heal ourselves. It's not a feeling that you want other people to understand. I can remember having days where I pretty much didn't like me, so I wasn't going to expose anybody else to me because I, I was miserable, so I'm not going to expose this person to anybody. And um, other families and people were telling me that they'd had similar feelings and, you know, the the crying in the shower so the, the kids didn't hear you, the sitting on the floor screaming at the ceiling as if the ceiling is going to talk to you, and uh, crying till you couldn't cry anymore. But I also learned in those days that I had many blessings. I had people that came into my life that I never expected and are still there for anything that I might need. I also had blessings with the foundation, meeting this family that nobody wants to be a part of. We don't want them to be a part of it, but I couldn't have asked for better family had I picked them out myself. The firefighters that always lend support and always surprise you with the things that they will do for you and then my amazing husband, who I met through the foundation, never in my life I had expected that. Thank you for listening to the Grief in Progress podcast, a production of the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a positive review. For transcripts and other episode extras, visit griefinprogress.com. To learn more about the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, visit firehero.org.